Chapter 35 A Pure Offering I do not know how long it was before I opened my lips, but for a very long time, I believe, I sat there without uttering a word, and let everything Angulimala had said rise, point by point, before me. And the more I reflected, the more did my wonder grow. For although I had heard many legends of olden times where miracles were wrought by the gods, and particularly of the wonderful deeds of Krishna when he sojourned on this earth, yet they all appeared trivial when I compared them with what had befallen Angulimala in the forest this very day. And I asked myself now whether that great man, who had in a few hours transformed the most brutal of murderers into the gentle being who had just spoken to me, that master who had so easily and surely tamed the most savage being to be found in the whole realm of nature, whether he might not also be able to quiet my troubled and passion-tossed heart? Would he be able to banish, by the light of his words, the night-cloud which grief had caused to settle down upon me? Or was this maybe more difficult, a problem the solution of which went beyond the powers of even the holiest of sages? I half feared that the latter might be the case, but yet I asked where that great monk whom he called his master was to be found, and whether I would be able to visit him. It is good that you should ask that question first, answered Angulimala. And really, what should you ask but this? Indeed, I have come to you for just this very reason. We who intended to be associates in works of darkness, let us now be associates in good. The Blessed One abides at present in the same Singsapur wood which you yourself mentioned. Go there tomorrow, but not until evening. The monks and nuns will then have finished their silent meditation and will have assembled before the old Krishna temple and the master will speak to them there, and to any others who are present. At that hour, many women and men go there from the town in order to see the Blessed One and to listen to his illumined teachings. And with each evening, the crowd grows greater. Often these meetings last until late into the night. I already had exact information of all that, because, in the greed and derangement of my heart, I had forged the monstrous plan of some day soon falling upon the assembly with my followers. The gifts of foodstuffs and cloth brought by many of the visitors as offerings to the order, already formed a booty which, if not rich, was yet by no means to be despised. But particularly, it was my intention to capture several citizens of distinction and to force heavy ransoms from them, and I cherished, at the same time, the hope that I should buy such a daring deed, done at the very gates of the town, to at last entice Satagira outside the walls. For, when I formed the plan, his impending journey was still unknown to me. Do not neglect then, noble lady, to go tomorrow towards sundown to the old Krishna temple. It will long be a source of happiness to you. I want to get back there now as quickly as possible. It's not certain, of course, whether I shall be in time to hear anything. Still, on such beautiful moonlit nights, the monks stay together long, deep in spiritual discussion, and willingly permit others to listen. He bowed himself low before me and quickly went away. The next morning I sent a message to Medini, who was, with her husband Somadatta, just as ready to bear me company to the Krishna grove now as she had been in those days of the past, when the matter in hand was the bringing about of a meeting between two lovers. As a matter of fact, she had already begged her husband once to take her out there some evening, for she didn't readily let anything escape her of which the people talked. But Somadatta had been afraid of his house Brahmin's criticisms, and so she was more than delighted to have the excuse of a summons from the wife of the minister to win one over against that religious tyrant. 
We drove at once to the market where Somadatta, who was attending to his business there, helped us in seeking out such stuffs as were suitable for the clothing of the nuns and monks. I also purchased a large quantity of medicines. Reaching home again, we plundered the storerooms. Vessels full of the finest ghee, boxes of honey and sugar, jars with preserves of every kind were set aside for offerings. My own cupboards furnished the choicest of all they contained in the way of perfumed water, sandalwood powder and incense. And then we went to the garden, whose wealth of flowers we did not spare in the excitement of our new-found devotion. When the longed-for hour came, all these things were loaded onto a wagon, to which our oxen were already harnessed. We ourselves took our seats under the awning of another carriage, and, drawn by two silver-white, full-blooded sinned horses, which every morning ate three-year-old rice from my hand, we drove out of the city gate. The sun was already nearing the cupolas and towers of the town behind us, and its rays gilded the dust which was stirred up along the way by the feet of the multitude that, like ourselves, had come out to see and hear the Buddha. We soon reached the entrance to the forest. Here we stopped our carriage, and we pursued our way on foot like all the others, followed by our servants who bore the collection of offerings that we had brought with us. Since that night when we two had taken leave of one another there, I had not been into this wood. And when I now entered its cool shade in the same company as before, I was overcome by so piercing a breath of memory that I froze in my tracks and remained standing like one stupefied. It was a fragrance that seemed to have been stored up for me there until, with the lapse of years, its concentrated sweetness had become a poison. It seemed to me as if my feelings of love had placed themselves in my way, awakened to their full strength and charging me with desertion and treachery. For I had not come there, as I knew, to give them fresh nourishment by inhaling the fragrance of memory, but to seek peace from my disappointed and tortured heart. And could that not rightfully be called forgetting love? Willfully renouncing it? Was that not the violation of my word and a cowardly treachery? I stood there in unfearful certainty, undecided whether to go on or to turn back, to the great disappointment of Medini, who verily danced with impatience as others overtook us in great numbers. The look of the interior of the forest, however, softly illumined by the golden rays of the late afternoon sun, the gentle admonitory rustle and whisper of the leaves, the people who had once on entering grew silent and looked around expectantly and almost timidly. Here and there at the foot of some great tree, a monk wrapped in the folds of his golden robe, his legs crossed beneath him, absorbed in meditation. At intervals, one or another of these rising, and without even a look around, moving quietly away in the direction of the common though as yet invisible goal. All this wore an air of quiet, mystical serenity, and seemed to bear witness to the fact that here events were taking place of so unusual and sacred a character that no power on earth might dare place itself in opposition to them. Aye, that love itself, if it should raise a hostile voice, would through that lose its every divine right. So I moved resolutely forward, and the words addressed to Angulimala by the Master concerning the many generations of people who live and pass away without a Buddha's being in the world, and of the very few among even the contemporaries of a Buddha to whom it is given to hear and to see him. These words sounded in my ears like the ringing of a temple bell, and I felt myself like a favoured one who goes to meet an experience for which many coming generations would envy her. When we reached the glade in which the temple stood, a great many people were already assembled there, lay people as well as nuns and monks. They stood broken up into groups, most of them in the vicinity of the ruin which rose up just opposite to us. Near to the spot where we entered the clearing in the forest, I noticed a fairly large group of monks. 
there was one amongst them whom it was impossible not to notice. He was practically a giant, and he towered a full head above the tallest of those who stood beside him. Then, when we were looking about us to discover where we should turn our steps, there came out of the forest, between us and those monks, an aged and sagely figure, clad in the golden robes of the order. His tall frame had such a regal bearing, and such a cheerful peace radiated from his noble features, that at once the thought came to me, I wonder whether this is the Sakyan prince whom the people call the Buddha. In his hand he bore a few singsapa leaves, and turning to the monks of whom I have made mention, he said, What do you think, bhikkhus, which are more numerous, these singsapa leaves which I hold in my hand, or all the other leaves in the forest? And the monks answered, The leaves which you hold in your hand are very few, Lord, whereas the leaves in the singsapa wood are far more numerous. So too, bhikkhus, said he, who I now knew was indeed the Buddha, so too, that which I have discerned, and yet not revealed to you, is far greater in some than that which I have revealed to you. And why have I not revealed all things to you? Because it would in no way profit you spiritually, because it would not assist you in the holy life. It would not lead to your turning away from worldly things, nor to the destruction of all craving, nor to the change which is the end of all change. It would not lead you to peace and to the realization of nirvana. Huh. So that foolish old man was right after all, exclaimed Carmenita. What old man? asked Varsity. That monk with whom I spent the night, the last night of my earthly life, in the hall of the potter, in that suburb of Rajagaha. He would insist on trying to expound to me the teaching of the master, and, as I readily perceived, did not especially succeed. But he manifestly quoted many genuine sayings, including what you just told me, even to the very words. He even gave me the name of the place correctly, and moved me deeply as he did so. Had I imagined that you had been present there too, I would have been much more profoundly affected. He was very probably among those who were there, said Varsity. In any case, he seems to have given you an accurate report. And then the master added further, And what friends have I declared to you? I have declared to you what suffering is, what the origin of suffering is, what the end of all suffering is, and what the path that leads to the end of all suffering is. All this have I declared to you. Therefore, what I have revealed, let that remain revealed. And what I have left unrevealed, leave that unrevealed. As he uttered these words, he opened his hand and let the leaves fall. And when one of these fluttered down near me, describing gyrations in the air, I took courage, stepped quickly forward, and caught it before it had touched the earth, in that way receiving it, as it were, from the master's hand. This priceless memorial I concealed within my bosom a symbol of the short but all-sufficing first message communicated to us by the Buddha from his measureless wealth of understanding, a symbol from which I was not to be parted until death. This movement of mine drew the attention of the Master to me. The gigantic monk, to whom I have alluded, now bowed before him and made a whispered communication, upon which the Master again looked at me and then made a sign to him. The latter now came towards us. Approach, noble lady, said the monk and I knew at once from the voice that it was Angulimala's. The master himself will receive your offerings. Even though Angulimala had by now shaved off his hair and beard, and was clad in the robes of the Buddha's disciples, it somehow came as no surprise to me to find him thus transformed. His manner had changed so completely that the robes of a monk seemed as natural to him now as the garland of severed fingers had been to his previous robber state. We all went forward to within a few paces of the Buddha, and bowed low, greeting him reverently, our hands with palms placed together, 
but I was unable to utter a word. Your offerings are rich, noble lady, said the master, and my disciples have few needs. They are heirs of truth, not heirs of material things. But all the Buddhas of past ages have recommended the practice of giving and have gladly accepted the offerings of devoted followers. In this way the Sangha is provided with life's essentials and the opportunity is given to the faithful to cultivate generosity. For if people knew the fruits of giving as I know them, if they had but a handful of rice left, they would not eat of it without giving a portion to one poorer than themselves, and the selfish thoughts which darken their spirits would disappear from them. Let your offering, then, be gratefully accepted by the Sangha, a pure offering, for I call a pure offering that with which the giver is purified and the receiver also. And how does that take place? It takes place, Vasati, when the giver is pure in life and noble in heart, and the receiver is pure in life and noble in heart. And when that is the case, the giver of the offering is purified and the receiver also. That is, Vasati, the purity of the supremely pure offering, such as the one that you have just now brought. Then the master turned to Angulimala. Go, friend, and have these offerings placed with the other stores. But first, show our noble guests the seats in front of the temple steps, for I shall speak from there to those who are present today. Angulimala bade the servants wait and called upon us to follow him. First, however, we had all our flowers and also several beautiful mats handed to us. Then, conducted by our stalwart guide, we made our way to the temple through the rapidly growing crowd who respectfully parted and made way for us. Here we spread the mats upon the steps and twined garlands of flowers around the old weather-worn and crumbling pillars. Then Medini and I picked a whole basketful of roses and strewed the petals upon the felted mat at the top of the steps for the master to seat himself upon. Meanwhile, the assembled crowd had grouped themselves in wide semicircles with the lay people to the left and the monks and nuns to the right of the temple. The whole assembly, either sitting on small grass mats or on the carpet of singsapa leaves that formed the forest floor. We now took our places on an overturned pillar, only a few paces from the steps. There were probably about five hundred people there, yet an all but absolute silence reigned in the circle. No sound was to be heard save the ringing of the crickets and the fitful rustling and low whispering of the forest leaves. <laughs>